Morning. Good morning, Antioch Waco. It's been a minute. Good to see you all. Uh, I transitioned off staff right before the uh, birth of my third. And so it is good to be back on the stage next to Mick. Honored to be here. And so before we dive in, I wanted to give you a little picture of what I've been doing the past 10 months and beyond. Here is our beautiful, amazing family. Uh, if you don't know, I'm married to the California Dreamboat. Uh, my husband of about five and a half years, we've got three kiddos. Oldest is Hadley. Pink sunglasses, she's three, Harper, yellow sunglasses, two, and then Hudson, our newest addition, about nine months old, Hudson Bear, and we have a clean, quiet house, and we're all sleeping a bunch, (laughs) and love our lives, love this season, and honored to be here today, um, where I get to sit next to brilliant McMurray. Are we so grateful for McMurray and the anointing on this teacher? Uh, But yes, today we are going to be hitting on truth, identity, beauty, God's design. And we could go a thousand ways with this message. We're going to go two. All right. Two ways. We are going to look at lies that come against our identity as men and women. And we're also going to look at lies that come against our relational unity as men and women. And our hope, our genuine hope is that you leave today with biblical clarity around how God designed you and that how he designed you is good. He says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that we're made in his image. And also that we need each other, that we need men, that we need women together to image God and to fulfill his purposes here on earth as it is in heaven. So it is gonna be a joyful time together, amen? All right, before we dive in, we're going to kind of give a little slice of our stories. So kick it off, Mick. Great. And just to um, echo what Maddie said, we're not going to be able to cover every nuance. And uh, so if today opens a loop that we don't close for you, on a practical note, we're in the middle of our uh, Life You course on sexuality that happens on Monday evenings. And we want to open up tomorrow night in particular to anybody who wants to talk more about uh, sexuality and gender uh, specifically. So tomorrow night from 6 to 7.30 in the, uh, it's called Room 500. It's where the deep, the fourth and fifth graders are, uh, just behind the uh, sanctuary here. You are welcome to just jump in with us. So if you want to talk more about what we're talking about today, please join us tomorrow, 6 to 7.30 in Room 500. Uh, but yeah, you guys, uh, if you've been around, you know a little bit of my story uh, as I've shared over the past couple of years. I was adopted into a great family, but not a super deep emotional connection with my dad. And so that kind of left something of a question mark on my soul around uh, what does it mean to be a man as I grow up? What's expected of men? What is a man? And uh, there was a bit of a vacuum there. And so I didn't quite know where I fit into the world of men. So I uh, enjoy sports and hunting. My dad was a really big athlete growing up, is into hunting and kind of all things that you would might think of stereotypically male. And I do enjoy those things. But I also had this kind of other side to me growing up. I'm in my head a lot, uh, uh, introverted. I like the arts. I feel emotions very deeply. And I remember... I didn't remember this until preparing for this message, but I have this memory in probably about sixth or seventh grade of really coming to enjoy the poetry of Lord Byron, as, as most sixth and seventh graders do. 
And uh, so I, I checked out one of his collection of works from the library, and I snuck it into my house for fear that my parents would discover that I was reading poetry, because that, uh, that was not uh, in alignment with what I, uh, had the, the vision of masculinity I had at that time. And so uh, a lot of just confusion and security, a lot of sexual brokenness. I shared uh, that a few weeks ago, just in my insecurity, coping with pain through uh, pornography and other things. And it really wasn't until coming to uh, Baylor, and I shared this again just a few weeks ago, getting connected to the church, meeting God, and being fathered by God, meeting other godly men, and getting a vision biblically of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus as a male, and began to receive healing and freedom and security. But that has been an ongoing journey now at 40 years old and raising four boys uh, in this kind of complex cultural moment that we find ourselves in. What does it mean to be male and a follower of Jesus and a father and raising boys and so on. So deeply passionate about this topic and uh, I'm excited to share a few thoughts this morning. Maddie? Amen. A little slice of my story. I grew up in what I would consider to be an amazing home. Like my parents are rock stars and I would say what I grew up in was healthy not perfect, but very Jesus-centric. I mean, I was taught and saw the love of God day in and day out for my 18 years under my parents' roof. I was believed in. Uh, I was affirmed. I was given great affection. Uh, I was trusted. I was empowered. I was heard. I was seen. I was crazy celebrated. Um, And so I'm so, in this season of life, daily thankful for what my parents gave to me. It was truly amazing and the the firm foundation of security. But however, in high school, around my senior year of high school, um, I was compared to this other female athlete. I was a big sports gal back in the day. And this, I was told from a friend of a friend that this girl who I was compared to, that she chose to go the route of a lesbian lifestyle. And I remember hearing that and thinking, wow, I would have never thought that. And this lie got implanted in between my ears as a sweet little 18-year-old. Because you've been compared to her, you're going to become like her and you will become a lesbian. That was the lie that got implanted. And that sent me on an 18-month journey of tremendous fear tremendous fear, fear that I was going to lose control of my feelings, my affections, that I was going to lose control of my, my body. What even is the truth about how God created me? But I can say with such confidence and such freedom on this side of that short chapter, which in the middle of it felt like forever, that the truth of God set me free. The truth of the word of God prayed over me, declared over me, memorized uh, all these confess. I mean, bringing what was in dark, just dark, dark stuff into the light. Confession, renewing my mind in truth, getting into community that the truth of the word of God set me free. And I'm so grateful. Fast 40 years or so after that, I ended up here at Baylor. And I would say in my four years in our college ministry, my relationship with Jesus got torqued up. I would say any college student in this room, dive deep in your four years here. Uh, But I was ushered into a culture of vulnerability, hunger, passion, mission, discipleship. And throughout my college years, I found myself being empowered into several different 
leadership roles in the church, outside of the church. And that led me when I graduated from Baylor to be offered a job here on staff at Antioch from Carl Gully to come on staff as the associate college pastor. Did that for about seven years. And then was young adult pastor, the women's pastor. I was on a strategy team. And I can say with great authenticity that my decade of pastoral ministry here at Antioch was amazing. Like I was so trusted I was so believed in. I was so covered. I was greatly empowered and wholeheartedly utilized to serve this body. And I'm so grateful for that time in my life. And now, as you can see on the pic, I'm a little busy with my three teenies. I am full-time momming and so grateful for it and trying to lay the same foundation that was so generously given to me to them, that being love, joy, identity, a whole bunch of Jesus, and a whole bunch of time. Yes, so that's a little slice of us. And so Mick's going to take us a little bit into our text for today. We're going to kind of keep the ball rolling. Yeah, because what we know is if we were to go down the rows, all of us would have different experiences and be at different places when it comes to this issue of kind of sexual identity. And again, there is so much brokenness in in our culture. And so we know that this is a sensitive topic for a lot of people. Uh, But we're going to try to untangle some of the knots, not all of them, through uh, the word this morning. Uh, As Jimmy mentioned, we've been in a series called Union Communion Partnership under this kind of banner word of unity for the year 2023. And this fall, we've been talking about Ephesians 4, and uh, that's going to bring us to verses 7 and 8 today, which will be kind of our underlying text that we'll springboard off of. The astute uh, church member will recognize we skipped over a couple of verses that we're going to circle back to over the, the next few weeks, which I'm sure all of you picked up on. Uh, but verses 7 and 8, Paul says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So Paul starts off this thought with the word but because he's contrasting it with what he's just been talking about. Again, that uh, which we will go over over the next couple of weeks. Uh, where he's been talking about how we are one body, there's one baptism, one faith, that we are all one in Christ. He says, but in, in light of that unity and that sameness, Jesus still reserves the right to gift us differently, to make us unique and distinct. And uh, in terms of gifts here, specifically, in context, he's talking about apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, which he'll talk about that in, starting in verse 11, but we can expand on that, that Jesus reserves the right to make us not just uniquely gifted, but unique male and female, unique in our race, unique in our family of origin. And there are so many differences among us. Now, in our brokenness because of sin, which we'll talk about uh, at length this morning, those differences among us can create division, jealousy, envy, and so on. But in this same breath, Paul quotes Psalm 68, 18, when he talks about Jesus ascending on high and leading a host of of captives. Essentially, what Paul is saying is that Jesus has overcome that which used to hold us captive. Uh, Paul will talk about this in Galatians 5. He'll list things like enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, and so on. So because Jesus has overcome things like envy, we can celebrate the way that someone else is made because we are secure in the love of God for ourselves. Does that make sense? Are you following me? I can be content 
and how I'm made, even though it's different from Maddie, different from Jimmy, as I discover that God-given imprint that he has put on me uniquely, even though we are one in the body of Christ, of co-equal value as sons and daughters of God. Now, it's also worth noting in this, um, these couple verses that at the end, he says he gave gifts to men. And that's just an English trans- translation, that word men, of the word anthropos, which was the original language this letter was written in. And that word means men and women. So it could say he gave gifts to people. He gave gifts to mankind. And as Jimmy and Maddie have both said, we believe that men and women are both gifted by God, that the full range of spiritual gifts in the scriptures are available to men and to women. And we'll get on uh, into that more in a moment. But again, we can celebrate the, the thrust of the, these couple of verses is we can celebrate one another and find unity in our oneness as the body of Christ because Jesus has overcome that which used to hold us captive and make us jealous of one another and, and create strife and enmity and bitterness and so on. Uh, but before we go into more of the relational unity we find in the scriptures, Maddie, take us a little deeper into personal identity. Yes, going to go a little bit into identity, but want to point out here in Ephesians 4, God is saying that he has distributed different gifts to men and women, and that gives the church beauty, fruitfulness, wholeness, unity. And even farther down in Ephesians 4, as you look at verses 11, 12, all the way down to 16, Paul is exhorting the church in Ephesus to be a mature church. And Jimmy already alluded to this, and that is when men and women are using their gifts to do the works of the ministry, that they are being participants, that they are coming to serve, they are being activated to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And I love what it says in verse 13, which I think that this is so what we at Antioch Waco are trying to be. Uh, We're trying to reach a unity of faith, this is verse 13, in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature as a church, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Isn't that something so amazing to seek to be as a body, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Jesus? And what I want to hit on here is that what precedes a mature church, which is men and women operating in their gifts to serve the body, are actually individual men and women secure in their own identity in Jesus. So for us to be a mature body at Antioch, Waco, each of us have to continually nurture and nourish our own identity in Jesus. Amen? Amen. So before Mick leads us into more sexual identity and gender and how that images God, we're going to pause and be washed afresh in our identity as sons and daughters of the Most High. And so we're going to hit some lies that if you're a human in the room, if you're human in the room, you've unintentionally meditated on, thought about, or struggled with. Before we get there, we're going to participate. I want you to put your hand on your chest. We're going to say some scripture over ourselves. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, repeat after me, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. One more time, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. Amen. Do you know that we do have an enemy, the devil, the deceiver, the thwarter of truth, loves to spin the truth, loves when we are insecure. 
because then we're immobilized. We're fearful. We're stagnant. We're unable to be free in Jesus. And he loves it when we loop on these lies. They're going to come up on the screen. The lie of, I am not enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough, rich enough, skinny enough, strong enough, funny enough, patient enough. Bottom line, I do not have what it takes for marriage, for parenting, for this friendship, for that relationship. I am not cut out for this promotion, that opportunity, this team, this family, that project. I'm too much. I'm too loud, too emotional, too quiet, too forward, too wounded, too messed up. Therefore, I cannot interview for the job serve in this body, move to this nation, show up to that dinner or be used of God to fulfill his purposes in this family, in our church or in this city. Can anybody, yes, been there a little bit? Any humans in the room that struggled? Um, Can I speak a simple transformative truth to our souls this morning? Okay, it's a common passage, but when believed can set you free. Psalms 139 13 through 14. For you, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Breathe that in this morning. We are each fearfully and wonderfully made. The God of the universe put you together in the womb of your mother and your divine created wiring has great purpose. And he says, it is wonderful. And our souls need to know that very well. Love the end. My soul knows it, the truth very well. So how do we as Antioch Waco nurture and nourish our identities in Jesus? We tell our soul the truth. We tell our soul the truth. That sounds so simple, but what I have found is the simple things done consistently change you and change the world around you. Romans 12, 2, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. So instead of looping on those thoughts that freeze you in insecurity, try a few of these. In Jesus, you are enough because Jesus was enough to satisfy God's wrath and make you righteous through his death, burial, and resurrection. In Jesus, you have what it takes because his power is at work within you. First John 4, 4. In Jesus, you're not too much because he is able to make you new and transform you into his likeness, into his image. Second Corinthians 3.18, in Jesus, you're created to be a participant, not a spectator in his kingdom here on earth because you're made in his image, Matthew 5 and Genesis 1. As always, at the deepest level, the issue is sin. We try to compare ourselves amongst ourselves. We try to find validation, affirmation, success, or significance outside of the cross of Jesus, trying to live up to our parents' expectations, try to grab at anything or anyone that we sense might give us significance. But as believers, we have to continually tell our soul that it is in Jesus. It is in relationship with Jesus that I am made pure, 
whole, secure, and free. His blood washes me and makes me new. And when we commit to a lifelong relationship with Jesus, where we nourish and nurture our identities in him, then we get to be a mature body. That Ephesians 4, 13 body where the fullness of Jesus is experienced. We're not infants tossed to and fro by every wind of changing doctrine, but we're anchored and alive in Jesus. I want that for us. Amen. Amen. And so in the coming weeks, we'll talk more about how we can use our distinct gifts to serve the body, but we're about to go into how it is important to know your identity in Jesus, but also your sexual identity and how God's purpose is seen in that for the lightweight topic, Mick. Okay. Isn't it good to have Maddie back, guys? So good to have you back. Preacher extraordinaire. Uh, yeah, again, our, our sexuality has become a very complex topic in this kind of cultural moment we find ourselves in. And that's sad because our sexuality is such a, a key component of our God-given identity as we find in the scriptures. And it would not be an Antioch sermon if we didn't go to where? Genesis 1, all right? So Genesis 1, 26 to 28. I think we're batting 1,000 in 2023, Jimmy. Uh, I think we've hit Genesis 1 every week this, uh, this year. Uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And this is key. This is the first kind of creational moment of male and female. And as believers who affirm the validity of Scripture, everything else flowers out of this soil in terms of what we believe about what it means to be male and female. It says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We're about to wade into some very deep theological waters that we're not gonna be able to plumb fully, but just hang with me. So we're gonna pull out three fundamental truths right off the bat out of these uh, first verses. Number one, that male and female together reflect the nature of God. So God says, let us make man in our image. That first person plural was an early echo of the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three persons in one entity. He is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. Another way to say that is he is diversity in unity. He is diverse within himself, but fully unified. And so one sex was insufficient to fully image the diversity in the person of God. So he made them male and female to be a diversity in unity. Secondly, male and female are co-equal. You see in this text, they're both made in the image of God. They're both blessed. They're both given dominion or agency. And then thirdly, male and female are needed together to fulfill God's purpose. God's purpose uh, in this uh, passage, verse 28, is that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In order for humans to be fruitful and naturally multiply, it requires a partnership, male and female. Male alone or female alone are insufficient to fulfill the purposes of God. All right, so then this pivots into Genesis 2, where we get a bit of a more intimate retelling of this particular portion of the creation narrative. So uh, Adam is alone, and initially God creates Adam, and then in verse 18 of chapter 2, it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. 
Why is that? I used to think that was because he was simply lonely, but he was with God. I think what the scripture is saying in context is it's not good for man to be alone because we've already learned in chapter one, his purpose is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He is, in, he is unable to do that alone. So God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, a lot of us can stumble over that word helper because it connotes kind of this subservient or this differentiation of value between male and female. But actually that word is an amazing word in Hebrew that's translated helper in English. Uh, it's the word azer, and it's used 21 times in the Old Testament. 17 of those uses are, dis- are used to describe God himself. And another translation would be deliverer. So God is my helper. God is my deliverer. And God is saying to Adam, I'm going to make a deliverer, a helper, because you cannot fulfill your purpose alone. You need someone to partner with, to co-labor with. Now, this is in the context of marriage. We could blow this out to talk about the body of Christ. We don't have time for that, so don't let your mind spin on that. We're all, we're all in the game here. But he says, I will make a deliverer, a helper, fit for you. Uh, verses 21 and 22. So the Lord God, you guys with me? Yes. All right caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So this one being has become two co-equal humans, male and female, but, and this is the key for uh, kind of our purposes this morning, but with sexual differentiation, male and female. That is the key for mankind to fulfill its creational purpose of filling the earth with the glory of God. That as these two sexually distinct uh, individuals are brought back together in unity, remember diversity in unity, it brings about fruitfulness and the ability to fulfill their purpose. So bottom line, what we get from the creation account of male and female, that we are co-equal beings with sexual distinction. And what's key for our purposes this morning again is that this distinction is located in our biology. Everybody say biology. Biology. All right, wading into some potentially uh, contentious waters. There is nothing in the story of creation, at least, in Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, that, that, uh, that is about our culture, our roles, or our psychology that is fundamental to being male and female. What we find in the scriptures is that our biology is ultimately determinative of being male and female. So we're going to attempt the impossible and define male and female this morning. So you can throw that slide up there. All right. Now, this is uh, word crafted. Every word in these definitions is very specific. And again, we don't have time to break it down fully. But when we talk about male, we're talking about one whose body is organized in such a way as to have the potential to initiate life outside the self. By contrast, female is one whose body is organized in such a way as to have the potential to gestate or grow, nurture life within the self. Now, if we can all be mature for a moment, we're talking about sexuality, of course, that the male uh, in our biology, our biology is organized to produce life outside the self, planting the seed, so to speak, while the woman's biology is designed to receive and incubate and nurture that seed. Now, what's key here is that the operative word uh, potential, because not every biological male and biological female will procreate, will initiate life or gestate life, whether too young 
or too old or some other biological abnormality or single or married. There's all kinds of uh, unique circumstances we find ourselves in, yet our bodies are still organized, even if the actuality is not realized, to have the potential to initiate or to gestate life. Are you following me? Okay. So masculinity and femininity, biblically, we would believe to be this. The masculinity or maleness, if you, get, if you stumble on the word masculinity, is analogous to God. It images God because God endows life or initiates life from himself but stands apart from it. And in theological parlance, that means that he is transcendent. He is outside of our experience, bigger than, higher than, outside of time and space, inaccessible in certain ways because of his holiness. The female then, femininity or femaleness, is analogous to God because God sustains life and is present among mankind, revealing God's imminence. That's another word. That's the other side of the transcendent coin. It means that God is with us, that he's accessible, that he is knowable, uh, present in us by his spirit. And male and female together are necessary to image the divine God that we serve. All right? Now, when we talk about our biology, just to get super specific here, it becomes evident why the devil would attack male and female identity, doesn't it? If this is so fundamental to revealing God to the world, of fulfilling our purpose, uh, it makes sense that the devil would attempt to tear this down in our hearts and minds. But to be even more specific, when we talk about biology, and we're crossing over into the medical field here, uh, we believe that our sexuality is based on five primary or fundamental biological distinctions, all right? This is about as in the weeds as we're going to get, so just hang in there, uh, and don't let your eyes roll back in your head for just a moment, all right? So five key biological distinctions. So this is within the medical community. It used to be decades ago that if somebody was born with ambiguous sexuality in terms of aesthetics or what we see, uh, then a doctor would make a distinction somewhat arbitrarily. But now, uh, the medical community uses these five distinctions between our karyotype, our phenotype, our gamete production, hormones, and additional reproductive structures. And when this test is applied, there has not been a single human born on planet Earth that is fully ambiguously ma uh, male or female. That God has hardwired into our biology to where everybody is fundamentally one or the other. It is fully binary. Our sexuality is not based on Secondary sexual characteristics, like body shape, voice pitch, facial hair, and so on. It's not based on cultural artifacts, like clothing, interests, personality type, and so on. It's not based on our psychology, how I feel about myself on any given day. Most of our stereotypes arise from the things on this slide. Most of our cultural stereotypes, and oftentimes even stereotypes we adopt within the church, can be based on this slide and not our fundamental biology. Uh, we've got some sli uh, a slide with some common stereotypes in our culture. I'm not going to go through all these, but some of these are silly, but some of them you might kind of scratch your head and think, well, isn't that fundamentally male or female? But in the scriptures, we find, again, that our fundamental maleness and femaleness is rooted in our biology. Actually, in preparation for this morning and uh, some other talks I've given on this topic, I've taken some gender quizzes online that proliferate now for, they, they lure in uh, young people 
who are uh, uncertain about their gender and, and their sexuality. So I took one, and it turned out that I'm 55% male and 45% female. Uh, all of the questions, my second one, this was even more balanced, 52% and uh, 48%. Uh, the last one, you can go and throw that up there. Apparently, I'm transmasculine. Uh, <laughs> So without indicating if I was male or female, apparently I have a masculine center in a female body. So who knew? <laughs> Sorry, babe. <laughs> but what's sad is all of the questions around these silly quizzes are based on these cultural stereotypes. And what's even worse is that confused 10 and 12 and 15 and 19 and 35-year-olds are on the internet, genuinely confused, trying to figure out what's going on, and they're led to trash uh, like this. For someone who doesn't fit within the cultural stereotypes, the lie used to be just, I'm not okay, uh, I'm insecure. Now there's a powerful counter-narrative that says, no, you don't fit because you're trans. And there's an attack, a demonic attack, against the fundamental identity that God has hardwired in us, in our biology. Uh, in the church, we need to be careful about what we baptize as kind of pseudo-biblical masculinity and femininity. Because in the Bible, you can throw up this other slide, we see that, if we have that, in the Bible, men are, women are, certainly caretakers and nurturers, but also they fight in battles and win wars. They're unmarried businesswomen. They're fearless. They funded Jesus' ministry. And just in Proverbs 31 alone, they're providers, landowners, dressed with strength and industrious and profitable, philanthropic, creative, wise, blessed. Men are certainly warriors and leaders, but they also cry. They're tenderhearted. They're profoundly emotional. They're relational. They turn the other cheek. They raise and train their children. They're humble, gentle, and patient. But while, yes, that's worth a woo. But while the Bible is broad in its application of our um, expression of sexuality, what it does command over and over and over is to maintain sexual distinction because of what it images in the nature of God. Now that can shift from culture to culture, but it is paramount that we embrace that God-given identity and maintain it in our expression for the glory of God. Woo, deep breath, everybody. That was some hefty truth, but clarifying, yes? We're feeling clear, hopeful, inspired, and again, so thankful for McMurray. Goodness gracious. Goodness gracious. So, again, all that he shared, attempting to summarize, there is great purpose and distinctiveness in our sexual identity. We are made in the image of God, male and female, and we together, male and female, image God. That is a stunning thought that males in their maleness show God's transcendence and females in our femininity, our femaleness show his eminence. Chew on that beautiful thought this week that we together image God in his fullness. And so we're going to pause before we transition. And in typical Mick form, you're going to turn to the person next to you. What has been a takeaway that you've received thus far as we have sought to bring truth to lies that come against our identity in Jesus and our identity as men and women? Go ahead, turn, take 30 seconds. What's a takeaway you've gotten?
All right, 10 seconds. All right, all right. Y'all can carry those conversations beyond this room into your family tables, workplaces, neighbors. It's always good to speak the truth to those around you. So we're gonna pivot now from identity around our sexuality, and we are gonna pivot to um, lies that come against our relationships between men and women, because we know that God desires unity, amen, between men and women. So the lie, if I say lie, lie, we are seeking to debunk is this, that men and or women are the source of all of our problems. In typical Antioch fashion, let's return to Genesis 1 through 3, Mick. I'll tee this up and then kick this back over to Maddie. But just to kind of round this thought out, we talked about Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And there's a word in there, the word dominion, that again causes some people to stumble, where God says that he gives dominion to male and female, to subdue the earth, to rule over it. And our idea of dominion is warped because we're tainted by sin. And so we think of the word dominion and we think back to the 1900s and people like Hitler and Stalin and so on and so forth, that to have dominion means that I oppress and subjugate rape and pillage and, and so on and so forth for personal uh, advancement. But that's not the image of dominion that God had in mind when he gave us dominion, this co-rulership of the earth between male and female. And we know that because he illustrates it in Genesis 2 and gives uh, Adam and Eve an early window into what he means by having dominion in that, verse uh, 15 of chapter 2, says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it to tend it, other translations say. So God's vision of what it means to have dominion is to be a gardener. Any gardeners in the room, right? If you've ever been a gardener, you know it takes a lot of work to bring order to chaos. But the, the role of a gardener, the motive of a gardener is to bring about what? Maximum beauty, fruitfulness, life. There's a stewardship to it. Not a dominion of oppression where I am taking but a dominion of stewardship where I am tending to bring about life, beauty, and fruitfulness. In the very next verses after verse 15, we find out that Adam has everything that he needs. All the trees of the garden are given to mankind for sustenance. God is physically present in the garden with him, and he is secure, loved, and uh, should be content in that. But we know how the story goes in chapter 3 that Adam and Eve are deceived. They doubt the, the love, affirmation, care of God, that they have everything they need. They rebel against God's authority. And that introduces this insecurity that leads to strife, that leads to blame, that leads to hiddenness, that leads to shame, that Adam and Eve immediately uh, uh, embody. And then they pass that on to their kids Cain, their son, kills Abel, their other son. And what was intended to be a dominion of stewardship from a place of security becomes a dominion of oppression from a place of insecurity. And then we see that passed on down through the ages. We see this in particular in verse 16 in chapter 3 uh, as part of the consequence of our rebellion. To the woman, God said, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
Now, this is not prescriptive of God. This is descriptive. He's saying this is the consequence. This is what's going to happen when you rebel against my authority. There's going to be a power imbalance here. Throughout the ages, and certainly at the time that this text was written, uh, men were on the whole stronger. And God is saying here, strength, power, influence, resources are going to be used to oppress now that mankind is insecure in my love. There's an imbalance of power. Now, again, over, the to- over time, we can blow this out to the whole human race that men and women alike throughout the ages have used their strength, their influence, not to exercise a dominion of stewardship, but a dominion of oppression. That when we have power, strength, and influence, we are tempted to utilize that for our own advantage at the expense of others. But... Jesus steps onto the scene in the midst of all of this chaos and all of these problems, and he is the most powerful human who has ever lived, and he encapsulates all of that power in an infant born in a stable in the most humble of means. He is homeless during his ministry. He is on his knees washing the feet of his disciples. He's stretched out on the cross, a Roman instrument of torture and execution to absorb the sins of mankind that we might be redeemed to God. He is the image of strength in submission for the benefit of others. Strength in submission for the benefit of others. And this is the vision that we need. How do we harness those gifts, those distinctions among us, the unique ways that God has created and, and wired us and the opportunities and the resources we have, how can we turn around and submit those to others for their benefit and growth and well-being? Now, I know we're trying to um, boil down an incredibly complex topic into a few moments here. So we're, again, we're not hitting every angle. This is a layered problem that goes as far back as the Garden of Eden. But the world's solution to this is to simply redistribute power through force. That is not the way of the cross. The way of the cross is the church living in unity, mutually submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ and giving the world a vision of what power in submission can look like. So Maddie, help us land the plane here. How can this look in practical everyday life? Woo! All right, so I'm going to speak to the ladies in the room for a little bit. Obviously, all that I'm about to say also applies to men. You don't have to put your hands over your ears or leave the room. Um, but just as a lady, want to exhort the ladies, if you will give me permission in this moment. If you will, let me hear you say whoop, whoop. All right, ladies. Okay, so as Mick just shared, Jesus is the one who has liberated us. It is Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection that we have been set free. We've been set free from ourselves, our own brokenness, our sin, our shame. It is he who has come as our hope, as our hero. It is in him that we find life because he gave his life for us. And then as born again believers, we surrender our lives back to him. Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. So as ladies, we get to find our security, our validation, and our liberation wholly in Jesus. 
So we do not have to look to our career or lack thereof for liberation or significance. We do not have to look to our perceived status or lack thereof for our liberation or our significance. We do not have to look to our relationship with men or women or our lack thereof to be liberated or have significance. It is in Jesus that we are free. It is in Jesus that we are strong. It is in Jesus that we are empowered. And when we come to Jesus by the Holy Spirit, we, was, we receive strength from him to then go to the places that he has assigned us and bring about all of his fearfully and wonderfully made wiring out. And we as women, we have great things to offer. Beauty, intuition, influence, vision, leadership, grit, capacity, creativity, compassion, empathy, nurture, so much. When wielded with strength and security in Jesus, we can be an advantage to Jesus and his agenda. I remember about 10 or so years ago, I went to a wedding of a couple of my friends, Blake and Lee. And in the wedding, in, in the vows, Lee had said that she wanted to be the greatest advantage. She vowed to be the greatest advantage to Blake. I remember sitting in there as a single woman being like, wow, I like that statement. So I stole it and put it in my vows to Ryan. And I remember at the wedding, I, this is probably one of the many moments in our vows that I got emotional was, I want to be an advantage to him. I want to be a source of strength to him. And my challenge for us ladies in the grace of God, in our security in the cross of Christ, we can be an advantage to everyone around us. Amen. There is so much good in us because we are made in his image, distinct and full of strength and humility. And we find it all in and through Jesus. And we get to be a mature body when we apprehend it. So ladies, let's do it. Let's be a strong, secure advantage. Amen. Amen. Mick, check yeah, the bros. Absolutely. Um, Yes and amen. And, and to the men, the, it's the same message. God has given us opportunities, influence, strength, resources. Why? Not to fill a void because we're insecure, because we didn't get the blessing of our Father and need to be somebody in the eyes of the world. We've received this to turn around and to be a blessing, to exercise a dominion of stewardship, uh, and it's not to minimize the pain and the lack and the loss and the disappointment and the discouragement, but it is to elevate the cross of Christ to find our healing and our identity and our security in Jesus to then be able to turn around and serve our wives, to serve the women in our workplaces, to serve the women in our classrooms and so on and so forth, to exercise a dominion of stewardship. The, the commands in Scripture, this is to both men and women, the commands in Scripture are not to become more masculine or more feminine, but to become more godly. All of us are called to image Jesus and take on his attitude. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing, everybody say nothing, nothing. from selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, 
but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours already in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, submitting his power, so to speak, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Amen. Y'all glad you came to church this morning? Love it. All right. Well, I think that was enough content for the, for the semester. Um, but if you will, go ahead and stand to your feet with me as we kind of bring this morning to a close. And as our prayer teams do come forward, we know that we covered so much content, some of which is so personal and so painful, either to you, yourself, or loved ones in your family, extended family, friends. And as we said at the beginning, our hope is for biblical clarity around who we are, our identity as men and women made in his image and the distinctiveness of our biological uh, form brings God great glory, us great distinctiveness. And so, yeah, even as our prayer teams are up here, uh, I want to close with something that we did earlier, and that was just speaking some truth to our souls. So if you want to again put your hands on your chest and just repeat after me, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. Amen. Jesus has made us with so much great purpose, fearfully and wonderfully made. And I love what Mick shared at the end there, that the goal is not to become more male or more female, to become more like Jesus. We want to become more like Jesus. We want to embody every aspect of who he is, embracing his humility, using our our great strengths and giftings to serve. And so before Mick closes us out, if any part of this morning touched on a tender part within you, just even your own identity, your own created wiring, if you just want someone up here to pray over you prayers of truth and strength and beauty and purpose, or if you are carrying a loved one who is confused, uh, who is just has listened to the voices of culture, has taken too many quizzes online and you are carrying them, We also want to pray with you there. So we would encourage you, any part of this morning, hit on an area that you want prayer for or that you're caring someone else for, please come forward. But Mick, close us out. Yeah, I'm just going to close this in prayer. So you come as Maddie invited you. Just start coming down and let somebody put a hand on your shoulder. But we're going to just end one, one last song, fixing our eyes on Jesus, because ultimately the healing, the unity that we desire will come through our connection with him, the exaltation of Jesus. So you come as I pray, and then we'll close with a song of worship. So Jesus, we do honor you. You are our salvation. You are our model for how to unify and heal and package strength in such a way as to serve. And I pray, Holy Spirit, all over the room that you would turn our hearts to Jesus today. You would heal relational brokenness and disunity and internal strife and struggle through the revelation of the person of Jesus. Would we know the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of your love this morning? Would you heal all of those broken places in Jesus' name? Amen. Would you respond as we sing one last song together?